There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Marvel's Loki drops on Disney Plus today, and the CMT Music Awards are tonight. So we're combining superheroes and country music with Tom Hiddleston, who joined me in 2015 to discuss his Hank Williams biopic, I Saw the Light, and talk smack to Batman and Superman. I'm here with the one and only Tom Hiddleston and director Mark Abraham. Gentlemen, thanks so much for for taking the time. We really appreciate it. You're probably one of the most famous villains of the whole this whole era as Loki. Um, I think, and I think I read Superman's maybe your favorite superhero, right? Is that right? Well, I, I've said that before because I'll never forget the first time I saw it. <laughs> I saw I must have seen Superman directed by Richard Donner mm-hmm. with Christopher Reeve when I was five or six years old. 1978. Yeah, and I probably saw it on on VHS or yeah. on television, and uh, I was like, yeah. I don't think I've ever seen anything yeah. greater than that in my all my yeah. days. There are only five years worth of days, yeah. but as a kid, <laughs> um, Christopher Reeve was was I'll never forget it. He was the first real superhero. What would Loki, you know, what, what would his strategy be against Batman and Superman? How would he take both of them out? Um, I think he'd be <laughs> amused that the children are playing. Um, I think he'd, he'd sort of somehow he'd sit high up in a tree and watch them throw rocks at each other um, I honestly don't know I mean that's it you're, you're, you're giving birth to an, a whole idea here which is the you know the idea that Mar- the Marvel Universe could somehow cross pollinate with the DC Universe I mean fans minds will explode at this point like uh, <laughs> um, uh, I don't know what would Loki be like I don't know it'd be interesting I, I feel like Superman would present a challenge um, but he's got form with uh, with people who wear red capes and fly around you know Thor has a red cape and flies around a lot so I think he would be uh, he'd just be slightly exasperated by by their need to go another 15 rounds in the ring do we have to do this you know what I mean I've been here before um, I could possibly tell you uh, I think he'd just be generally amused and patronizing about the whole thing I think you, all you'd have to do is take a country guitar and smash it over both of them <laughs> hey, when did you first discover this awesome Hank Williams music I mean for me it was through my grandfather he used to play in a country band until he cut off his thumb and all that stuff <laughs> <laughs> so I grew up listening to that sort of stuff you know but how, what was it for you guys you know, I can't remember that. All I know is that I've known the words to Hey Good Looking for a long time. I don't know why or how, but, but I, people say to me that Hey Good Looking's like Happy Birthday. It's one, of those, it's one of those things you can start singing Hey Good Looking anywhere in the world and people will join in. Respond what you're yeah. cooking. Um, and they often don't know that it's Hank Williams. Um, 
So that's my that's my that's how I knew Hank. Um, but until I read the script, I really had nothing. I had no um, knowledge of his life, his circumstances, his marriage. All that stuff was new to me. Right. How about you, sir? When did you discover Hank's music? Well, my grandfather didn't play in a country band, and he didn't <laughs> cut off his thumb, although he could have because he was a butcher. Heard it here first. However, I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, which is up. Uh, I-65 from Nashville, so I was a country music fan pretty much my whole life. I, I started listening to it when I was very young, and I listened to George Jones and then Merle and then a, a big Chris Christopherson fan and Willie, and ultimately though, as I've always said, if you are listening to those guys and you're listening to the radio, you're gonna, no DJ is going to play a set without eventually playing a Hank Williams song. And so I started hearing all Hank, and I knew a lot of Hank songs uh, before I even decided to write the piece of material about him, write the script. I knew, and I ultimately knew a lot about Hank because after I got older, I started doing some research on Hank. I just thought his life was just so extraordinary and he had died so young and so few people knew that he had died that I mean because you look yeah. at pictures in his 20s right he yeah. was 29 years old yeah. so when you see him he looks like he's 45 and then he finally was 20 he was only two months into his 29th birthday how did you go about sculpting the the voice for that what sort of research does that involve obviously listening to the songs over and over again but yeah. how did you go about sort of mastering that because some of those inflections are tough you know especially like a lovesick blues there's a lot of up and downs and you know um the, that whale is very yeah. you know signature um so how did you sculpt it and then uh kind of piggybacking with that question was there a certain song that came more natural, and was there one that was took a little more work to, to get oh, those inflections? Jason, I can tell you, I, I, rec <laughs> I recorded "Why Don't You Love Me" in an hour, um, uh, which is featured in the movie, and I recorded "Love Sick Blues" in about ten days. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, so, yeah, "Love Sick Blues" was was my Mount Everest um, because Hank's control over that song is so masterful and it, you know he used to say when he performed it live he said the song I've uh, played the 13 million and one half times um, he, he had to he had the luxury and the privilege of having practiced it for years and I had about two weeks um, and this, the, the thing I did and I couldn't have done it without him was was I moved to Nashville uh, Tennessee and I lived uh, as a guest of Rodney Crowell, who was our executive music producer and um, and my guide through the woods, um, and and uh, he himself was a huge Hank Williams fan. He saw Hank Senior on his own father's shoulders at the age of two when he was a child. It's one of his earliest memories, and he's been playing music for forty years. Understands Hank's music, the footprint of Hank's music on the rest of twentieth century culture, and he was able to just to sort of to to piece it out for me and to deconstruct it and demystify it and <clears throat> like like you do anything if I was playing an Olympic sprinter I'd have to run a certain number of miles a day um, at a, different at a biopic that's yeah. just <laughs> right um, but there was it there was an element of look it just you know it it just takes practice you just have to keep going back into the studio and having another go and and um, and every day it would get better and better. I'd, I would have more control over the songs and and more fun with it. In the end, it was a mixture of control and, and release, like all things, actually, all, all, all physical things. You have to, there's part of you that has to be very precise, another part of you has to be very free. Yeah. Anyway, eventually, I think we cracked it. Right. 
Definitely. I, I, I think the, the your cheating heart scene in particular, I think that works really, really well. So Nice Thank work. That was, so, one, that was one of the ones that we insisted, Rodney and Mark both insisted I sing live. Because you're cheating, the lyrics to your cheating heart are so pained and so sad um, that I, in order to transmit that, I didn't want to record it ahead of time. And I wanted to actually, it was actually an, an acting challenge as much as it was a singing challenge. Sure. Because, because what I needed to convey was the pain he was in and how that was connected to the song, which is, which is, which is an acting job as opposed to a singing job. It's an interesting thing. And, was, and when Hank recorded Your Cheating Heart, it was one of five songs he recorded in his last recording session. Two of them ended up going, I think, uh, becoming number one or number twos. And um, he, Your Cheating Heart, there was no, uh, never played while, while he was alive. You know, yeah. because he recorded maybe just at the very, very end, because he recorded it and he was he was in such pain. He did it sitting down. Uh, he was exhausted at the end of that, and yeah. Tom just beautifully renders that pain. Awesome. Now, so cracking the the vocal structure and everything was sort of his job, but for you, uh, you know. I, th I thought it picked up on some little directorial symbolism you're going. I, he's often lying down in the back of cars. Is that a, something that was in the, the script, or is it, did you write that not in the script, and then you came at that from as a director, or, or was that even conscious? Well, I mean, the thing is that Hank was in pain. His back was always painful for him. They didn't discover he had spina bifida occulta until he was old, much older. So pretty much whenever he had a chance to lie down, he did. He took, his, he took the weight off. And in those days, traveling around, they didn't have tour buses like Willie's got these days. They were traveling around in the back of that Packard. And it was, it was painful, it was exhausting. And Hank, you know, commandeered, he was the big boss. So he commandeered as much space as he possibly could. Um, and that, it was a conscious effort. We, so was there a little know, foreshadowing in it or more just his back hurt? I think, well, that's an interesting question. I think mostly it was about his back really hurting was, was the, the truth of it. Um, you know, you just, you have to make these, yeah, we do have to make these interpretations of it. You know, and look for that stuff. Yeah. You know, what we strove for always, Jason, was was authenticity. We were really trying to make sure that the, the film represented, and not, you know, iconic much more human. The, the film is a very human portrait of him. It's not the big moments in his life. It's actually yeah. some, mostly the small moments in his life that we really were striving for. So when you pick up on that, it's really about just a, you know a guy who was you know making his way around the country trying to you know sell his music. I'm Bradley Trainer and I'm Don McLean. We have a podcast called Blinded by the Item. A blind item is gossip about a celebrity with their name left out. It's a guessing game, and you can play along. The item might be like this: A-list star carries a Birkin bag worth more than the average person's house to the gym to work out. Pretty sure that's J-Lo. And P.S. The person behind all of this is Chris Jenner, LLC. We drop a new episode every weekday so the fun never ends. Blinded by the Item. Listen wherever you get podcasts and watch us on the Blinded by the Item YouTube channel. Definitely. Take me into, um, so that's sort of a director question. Let's go into a writer sort of thing. Um, the framing device with, you know, Bradley Whitford, you know, kind of recalling and sort of like, you know, direct address sort of docu-style. Um, tell me into how you made that decision and um, 
if you'll indulge me, I was th- you could have gone other another direction too. And are you aware of David Allen Coe's "The Ride"? With that song, "The Ride," where yeah. the stranger picks up a he's a thumbing from Montgomery with the yeah. guitar on his back and picks up the ghost of Hank Williams. You could have gone that route, you know. But how do you go decide on which route? Well, that yeah, that takes that. that <laughs> it's a little more place. supernatural. Yeah, that's a little supernatural and takes place at midnight, I think. And I think so. We'd have had a very dark movie. Uh, but, oh, it's really light as it is. <laughs> but I, but I, but I think that um, what I loved about the Bradley Whitford character was I tried not to make it so much that you knew he was speaking in the past or in the future. He was just talking about Hank. And what Bradley's a wonderful actor, and there's a certain amount of just a spontaneous way that we did that. My goal in that was simply that there's a lot of information that takes place in movies, and particularly movies that are about real people. And you can do it a lot of different ways. You can have the dialogue have a lot of exposition in it, which is my least favorite thing in the right. world. You'll notice, if, because and obviously you're paying attention to a lot of the smaller details, <laughs> even the conversations are very elliptical. Like, right. they have conversations where they're in a hotel in a hospital room and Hank's talking to his wife Audrey and she, she asks him a question and he answers her with the question it's very real dialogue That's how people talk. Yeah. yeah it's how people talk and what I really wanted to avoid was the idea of having to have Hank or Audrey or somebody within the context of the film particularly giving us information mm-hmm. about what was taking place so I kind of cribbed it from something else. Some of Bob Fosse used a similar technique, a great filmmaker, one I admire tremendously. And I thought that there was a way I could sort of adapt it to this and have... What Fosse is in here? Are we talking like all that jazz or cabaret? About, or we're talking about uh, in Lenny. Okay. He actually used a similar thing. It's not exactly what we did. But I thought that it was a great way to use Bradley as Fred Rose, speaking in a very, um, you know authoritative way about things he knew a lot about and take that off the table so that our characters were free to actually have real relationships and not necessarily be Eddie the explainer. Did producing a biopic like The Hurricane help you you know have experience sort of in this realm so you knew what to do when you sat down to do it? I didn't think about it. (laughs) I think I thought more about the films that other filmmakers I think Norman Jewish is a very fine filmmaker but I think I was no, I, I don't think so. I really just, I, I, but interestingly enough, films like All That Jazz and Lenny and, and Raging Bull, which are movies that don't really explain who, why Jake LaMotta, who he is, who he is, don't pick him up as a young boy getting beat up right. by a bunch of kids on the street so you see he becomes a fighter. What Starts I love, and ends in the nightclub. Yeah, right. yeah, I love, I love those kind of movies, and those films were much more influential for me. Gotcha. Um, and Tom, so you, uh, I believe, if I'm, if I remember correctly, you in Midnight in Paris, you were F. Scott, right? That's right. Yes. Yeah. You've had some experience playing sort of the the alcoholic, uh, womanizing type before. <laughs> Is there <laughs> compare compare say uh, F. Scott and Zelda's relationship as you understood it to Hank and in Elizabeth yeah. Olsen here? Oh, that's actually you're the first person to ever make that comparison. <laughs> that's or ask that's that my question. job, man. Uh, it's good. It's smart. Um, well, the first thing I think is to point out the differences in their education. I think, uh, you know, to some extent, well, differences and similarities. I think uh, Scott and Zelda were just, they were a lot more sophisticated. They were a lot more educated. Um, you know, uh, they had that sort of Princeton sheen and smoothness um, of, t- of that particular time. Um, they had Im- immense style. 
and uh, their indulgences were more of the champagne variety as opposed to the whiskey variety. Um, but I do think, and here's the thing that I've never said in talking about this film, you're the first person who's asked, is that there would be no F. Scott Fitzgerald without Zelda, and there would be no Hank Williams without Audrey. And I think their relationships and their ma their marriage, the intensity of the passion contained in those relationships is what gave each of those men an engine to create their best work. I just, I couldn't help, when you were sitting out on the porch in some of those scenes and shooting holes through the couch and stuff, I was yeah. like, I, you could have easily just transposed yeah. uh, F. Scott and Zelda. So, uh, Maybe. nice work, sir. If I just thrown in the odd old sport and had a different hair color, maybe it would have worked. The old sport, yeah, yeah. the old Gatsby trick. Um, awesome. Uh, I'm going to make you make him blush a little bit. Compare, let's say, the styles of Guillermo del Toro in Crimson Peak, yeah. which was a very stylish movie, and he's yeah. a wild filmmaker himself, versus this gentleman right here. Well... You know, I couldn't have done this without him. I couldn't have done any of this without Mark and uh, his enormous um, compassion and generosity of spirit, which was first laid bare in the screenplay, as he wanted to, to, to take Hank off the pedestal and examine the man, examine his relationships. Um, and his patience and his wisdom and the fact that he was always at my side, you know, the two of us in a foxhole together for, for so many years, and and whenever I was, and whenever I had a question, he was always, he was always open and available to have a conversation about it. And I think the um, the sensitivity of the relationships as displayed in this film uh, come entirely from Mark, because he gave us the space to explore it and he has the sophistication the experience about people to know that people are complex and contradictory and they get in their own way and they mean well but sometimes they trip up and um, yeah, Mark's an incredibly wise man um, and that I couldn't there have done it is there's the blush no. <laughs> um, you know, and it was great. And we had so many conversations. It was with when it. What I always see as an actor, I feel like an instrument in the orchestra, and um, so I, I know. Let's say I'm playing lead trombone or lead fiddle or something, but I, I'm an instrument in the orchestra. And every time I go to work, um, it's my job to play to the tune of a new conductor or a new composer. The director has the baton, um, whether it's Guillermo del Toro or Mark Abraham or, or whoever else, yeah. Kenneth Branagh or Steven Spielberg or the other people I work with. And, and I like the company. <laughs> <laughs> but it, you have to play according to the, uh, according to the, you know, you, you're led by, by the conductor. And that's part of the, the fascination of, of being an actor is that you, you find yourself um, sharpening the instrument, as it were, to to play the tune, to play to the tune of someone's artistic heartbeat, and that, and so, you know, syncing up with Mark on this was was a huge pleasure. Thanks so much, guys. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time.
I wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.